You are listening to the Your Shining Self podcast for women who need messages of hope, love, and transformation. And now, your host, Tish. Hey there, listeners. Today, I'm so excited to have Edie Weinstein with me. Before we jump into the juicy conversation that we're going to be talking about today, will you take just a couple minutes and tell our listeners a little about you? Absolutely. Um, I say that I'm a renaissance woman and a professional hyphenate because there are a lot of hyphens between what I do. So um, I'm a licensed social worker. I'm a therapist. I'm an interfaith minister. I'm a journalist. I'm a book author, an editor, um, cosmic concierge. That, that name came to me a couple of years ago. And I think of a concierge as somebody that gets stuff for people, that knows how, that has the connections and knows how to acquire whatever resources people need. So I call myself that. Um, also, um, what I call an optimistic, O-P-T-I hyphen M-Y-S-T-I-C, who sees the world through the eyes of possibility. Um, I'm also a workshop facilitator, presenter, a um, whole bunch of different things, you know, and, and the list is growing. So thank you for asking. Thank you for sharing that. Now, when I was checking you out online, so the first thing I thought was, oh my gosh, she is so cool. How have I never like been like in your world before? And there's a couple things that I saw that you call yourself that you didn't mention. And I just wanted to touch on them because I was like, oh my gosh, I have to know her. So you are also known as the Bliss Mistress. Yes. (laughs) You are a certified cuddle party facilitator Mm -hmm. and also a certified laughter yoga leader. Oh my gosh. Like I want to know so much more about those things. (laughs) Well, the bliss mistress came to be in probably 2007, 2008, uh, Uh, I met somebody that I was in a a relationship with for a short period of time, but we remained friends after all these years. And I had been teaching a workshop called BYOB, uh, Be Your Own Bliss, based on the idea, you know, the Joseph Campbell quote about follow your bliss. Um, I thought about that and I said, you know what, it's one thing to follow something outside of you, but it's another thing to be it. So I called it BYOB, Be Your Own Bliss. On my way into the workshop, this woman said, oh, you're the bliss master. You're going to teach us how to live blissfully. So when I got home, I called my friend Jazz and I told him about it. And he said, oh, no, not bliss master, bliss mistress. And you know how even if you're on the phone with somebody, you can hear the twinkle in their eye. And I said, okay, I like that term. He said, but if you're going to be calling yourself out, you better be living it. So every day I want you to, to do something that helps you to live blissfully. So that's where that came from. And that's also the title of my book, The Bliss Mistress Guide to Transforming the Ordinary into the Extraordinary. Uh, so it's about teaching people how to live their blissful out. So that's, that's that name. Um, another one is, uh, you mentioned Cuddle Party. Cuddle Party is a workshop that I didn't create, but I'm one of, I think, 175 certified facilitators all over the world. I'm number 27 that was certified. It was created in 2004 by two relationship coaches who are now out in California, Reed Mahalko and Marsha Vachinsky. And it's based on the idea that our cultures don't often, people in our culture, any culture in the world, don't often get enough nurturing platonic touch. For a lot of people, touch is either sexual, abusive, coercive, um, not by consent, or not enough. So the workshop helps people to understand that 
you can say yes to what you want in your life, no to what you don't want, not just around touch, but in every aspect. So I've, since 2005, 2006, sorry, when I was certified, I've done well over 400 of them. I've lost track after, you know, after that. And I do them all over, you know, mostly on the East Coast, but I can go anywhere and do them. So that's one thing that I do. The other one you mentioned is laughter yoga. I didn't create that either, but I'm one of, I don't know, thousands of people certified all over the world to teach this. It was created um, 24 years ago, 23, 24 years ago by Dr. Madan Kataria, who is a cardiologist in India. And his wife, Midori, is a yoga teacher. So they, they created this modality together. They used to gather in a park in Mumbai with their friends and they would tell jokes and they'd laugh and they'd feel really good. And then they ran out of jokes and he thought, what if in, you know, that we don't need humor or uh, comedy to laugh? What if we just laugh for the sake, just like a fake laugh? And his wife said, you know, the same muscles that we use for laughter are the same muscles that we use for yoga, you know, the diaphragmatic muscles. So I'm going to ask you to put your hand on your diaphragm and anybody listening do that and just laugh. <laughs> <laughs> so what happens to that muscle when you're laughing? What does it do? It's contracting. It's moving. Right. right. So it's, laughter yoga is considered light aerobic exercise. I don't know how many calories get burned, but you can burn calories doing this. So the other part of it, besides the laughter, is a sense of child, childlike playfulness and wonder. Kids laugh a gazillion times a day. We laugh maybe 15, 20, and we think we need to feel good to laugh. And it's really the other way around. Laughter helps us feel good. So it's got indications for depression, anxiety, physical pain, um, isolation, all of those things. Because when we laugh together, we bond. So they also include, the, the modality includes a number of what I call improv exercises, but he calls them the 40 core, C-O-R-E, 40 core exercises. And they're little like improv kind of acting things. My favorite is um, uh, mental floss. So you know how you get stuff stuck in your head, like all these negative yucky thoughts and you just, yes. so imagine having this huge container of mental floss. It's like dental floss and you pull out the string and then you stick it in your ear and you pull it through and you laugh. <laughs> and you pull out all the junk and all the, the negative judgmental thoughts and all the, oh, this, is, this feels sucky and I don't like this. And you pull it out and you shake it out and then you laugh. And it's really better done. You can do it by yourself, but it's really better done in a group because it's, it's bonding. So I, I teach laughter yoga, uh, you know, anywhere and everywhere as well. And you can look up both of those, those websites. It's cuddleparty.com and laughteryoga.org. And you can learn more about both of those modalities. Oh my gosh, Edie. Thank you so much. I oh, yeah. could talk to you all day just about those couple of things because sure. those just sound amazing. And I will make sure to also have those links in the show notes so that anybody um, that is interested in checking those out can go check those websites out. Sure. Thank you. Um, like seriously, I just want to take a trip to the West coast to be in your presence because, Oh my gosh. Like, well, just, actually like, you're on the West coast, right? I'm on yes. the East coast. <laughs> yeah. You're on the West coast. So I can, you know, I, I don't come out there that often, but I have been out there before, but I'm in the Philadelphia area. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Like I just, I want to be in your presence and Aww. like do like a cuddle party or a laughter yoga or something. Cause I think it would just be like so much fun and so needed. Oh my goodness. 
All right, but like I said, I could chat with you about that all day, but what I really wanna get into is something that selfishly is really close to my heart because I have also dealt with this in the past. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to chat with Edie today about being a recovering codependent. Oh, so boy. you wanna <laughs> tell my listeners a little about that. Yes, well, codependence, the term itself, used to be used to refer to somebody who was in a relationship with an alcoholic or an addict. They were the enabler. They were the, the person that was enmeshed with that person. They're the one that bailed them out if they got in trouble or picked them up at the bar, you know, all of that. But it's come to mean something different now. When I think of codependence, I think of boundary setting. And when people don't have solid boundaries, they can become, which I did, um, as, as one of my former clients referred to, not just a doormat, but wall-to-wall -wall carpeting, where they let people walk all over them, where they don't know where they start and somebody else stops, where there's so much enmeshment that, you know, if, if you feel something, it's because they feel it. It's, um, you know, like the Barry Manilow song, you know, I can't smile without you. That's kind of what it's like that when you feel so attached, not just connected, but attached to somebody else, that you can't be happy if they're not happy. Or if they pull, it's like tug of war. If they pull, you pull back, or you just surrender and, and go with whatever direction they want to go in. So most people that I've experienced as a therapist who find themselves in that category have had some dysfunctional patterns in their childhood. They may be the child of an alcoholic or an addict. They may be the child who grew up in an abusive household. Uh, they may be somebody whose parents abandoned them in one way or another. I didn't have any of those things. And what, when I started taking a look at it, it was probably not until the, the maybe late 1990s, early 2000s, I was working in a nursing home as a social worker. And one of my coworkers, who was a dear friend, um, was a chaplain. And she said, how did you get this way? I said, what do you mean this way? She said, so codependent. Because I know you told me about your childhood. And I said, well, my parents were very loving, wonderful people who had a, an amazing marriage, who raised my sister and me with love. There was no abuse, there was no addiction. Although my dad, I could say, was a workaholic. But he, when he wasn't working, he was fully present. He wasn't the babysitter, he was the daddy. And I had what I would call an ideal childhood. But my parents not only took care of themselves, each other, uh, you know, took care of us, you know, each other, their parents, their mothers, they, their mothers were both widowed at a fairly early age. So they took care of my grandmothers, uh, but they volunteered in the neighborhood. They both had jobs and they made it look so easy. And they were the go-to people for everybody in their lives. And I took that on. And I thought, okay, I'm, um, when I was a little kid, I would say that I was little Shirley Temple tap dancing for approval. Uh, because I wanted, I, I got all the love I wanted, but then I thought, oh, I better not lose it. So I had to figure out at a very early age what it would take to sustain that love. So I was the good girl. I was the caregiver. I was the listener. Um, I was the one that, that was the go-to person. I used to say that my mother was the rock that everybody leaned on. And I'd say to her sometimes, you know what, mom, rocks crumble. You can't be all things to all people. Well, I didn't take my own sage advice. So I, you know, I, I learned to do that. So that's how I became codependent. Um, Cause who wouldn't love a caregiver? You know, who, who wouldn't love somebody that's, that's there for them 24 seven. 
Exactly. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all that. Sure. Um, and I love that you mentioned that the term codependency has taken on a different meaning than how people used to think of codependency mm -hmm. because um, for me, I was the alcoholic. <laughs> oh. So, um, you know, it's interesting when I start to talk about my codependency issues because it was a lot different than how people used to think of that term. So um, I appreciate that you mm -hmm. took a couple minutes to explain that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the other thing I wanted to add about codependence, um, I call it savior behavior. And I didn't create that term. I don't remember where I heard it. But as somebody who's a codependent, I thought I had to fix all the boo-boos and kiss them, you know, kiss them, make them all better. And yes. I can't. And, and nobody can really fix anybody's boo-boos. Um, we're not, you know, we have broken places, but I don't look at anybody as being, ir you know, irretrievably broken. Uh, my husband, um, who died in 1998, used to say that uh, I was an emotional contortionist who would bend over backwards to please people. I was a deer caught in the headlights when it came to making decisions. And I was always looking over my shoulder to see if the propriety police were watching to make sure that I was being a good girl and doing it all right. And I, you know, all these years later, I still think about that. And I have to, you know, I take my inventory every day. Am I doing this? You know, am I being kind to somebody or taking care of somebody because they've asked me to or because I think I have to or because I want to earn brownie points? <laughs> no. So codependency can fall into those categories as well. Yeah, and I like that you mentioned that you call it savior behavior because it's so true. I often think of, um, you know, somebody in that aspect that is trying to fix people. I often think of them as their going hero. They want to fix mm -hmm. everybody and everything, and it's just right. not possible. Right. And some people, you know, I, I don't have the right, even as a therapist, I don't have the right to take somebody else's pain away. That's one of the hardest things for me is to assume that somebody wants their pain taken away or that I have the ability or the right to do it. You know, as a therapist, I can be someone's companion. Uh, you know, as they go along their journey, I can be a guide if they want it. But you know, even though I do have a magic wand on my desk, I tell them that, you know, that I, that the magic wand is a tool that they can be empowered to use it however they want. So I'll sometimes hand it to my client and say, okay, if you could wave this magic wand, what would you want your life to be like? Not what I think it should be for you. Oh my gosh, that's so good. And I love that you touched on that too, because as an alcoholic, I've been sober for five and a half years, but I think back to, you know, family and friends and other people around me that always wanted me to stop drinking and would point out, you know, I really think that you have a drinking problem and blah, blah, blah. But nothing changed until I literally woke up one morning and realized, oh my God, I cannot live my life like this anymore. So mm -hmm. yeah. nobody around me could fix me or make me want to get better. It is mm -hmm. entirely up to each individual to right. choose that they want change and need help. So I love that you mentioned that because Thank you. yeah, nobody can fix anybody else. Mm -hmm. um, so in the beginning of the recording, when we, before we jumped into the conversation, I mentioned that we were going to talk about recovering codependent. Mm -hmm. So I want to touch on um, and have you talk to my listeners about how you recovered from the codependency 
did you just wake up one morning and be like, okay, I can't live like this anymore? Or was no. there something significant that happened in your life that yeah. made you think, I can't <laughs> keep going like this? Yes. Um, no to the first question. Yes to the second question. Um, I'm still, you know, I consider myself a work in progress. Um, I have a dear friend that she has recovered. Um, she's a, um, you know, ha has had not had a drink in 48 years maybe, and also feels like she's recovered from codependency. I don't know that I will ever fully recover from that and workaholism. Now, I don't drink by choice. I'm, I'm not an I've never been an alcoholic, but I choose not to drink partly because if I'm going to ingest extra calories, it's going to be chocolate, not alcohol. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. The other is that a lot of my friends are in recovery and I'm an addictions counselor and I don't really need it. I don't miss it. I, if I never had a drink again, I'd be fine. But for me, those two, tw and I call them kind of twin uh, addictions is workaholism and codependence. And both of them were in my face uh, on June 12th of 2014. Now I'm going to roll back a few years. Um, in 2008, my dad died. 2010, my mom died. Both of them were my most ardent cheerleaders. And um, I was a social worker who handled the, you know, the home care for them. They lived in Florida. I'm here in the Philadelphia area. So I was the one that connected with home care, with hospice from a distance, and then down there when I could visit them. I'm also an interfaith minister, so I officiated at both of their services. Um, I was with my mom. I was with my dad when he died, but not with my mom. She orchestrated it that way. I was with her seven times in the last six months of her life. I was able to get down to Florida and be with her. And we had some amazing conversations, some of which are highlighted in the book that I mentioned. And I call it our hospice journey that we went on together. So when they both died, I thought, okay, I'm an adult orphan now. Uh, I'm the family matriarch now. What does that mean? I cried. I miss them. But I, the grieving daughter was kind of in the back room somewhere because I, had, I felt like I had to take care of business. I was my mom's executor, power of attorney, you know, all of that. I handled selling her, you know, their condo. And in November of 2013, around the anniversary of my mother's death, she died on uh, November 26th of 2010, a, uh, a few days before that, I started getting this weird rash on the left side of my head. And I thought, uh-oh, is this shingles? And it turned out that it was. So from the left side of my face over, my left eye, my forehead, I looked like a Klingon from, from Star Trek. It was swollen, my eye was shut. Um, I had these really sharp um, neurological pains in my forehead. And that same weekend that I had it, um, I was called, I had scheduled to officiate at my first same sex Delaware wedding. When, you know, when it, when it was, when it became legal in Delaware, that December 1st, I had a wedding to officiate. I said, how am I going to drive down there um, with my eyes shut? I am not going to miss this wedding. I don't care what it takes. I'm going to get down there. So I drove down there with my eye, you know, my left eye shut. Oh my um, gosh. I, I had, I put little circular bandages on my forehead to cover the lesions of my forehead. I assured that you know, I made sure that both of these women had, you know, weren't, in danger of, of being infected because it's um, it's part of the um, chickenpox virus and I had the chickenpox twice when I was a kid and um, I you know I wanted to make sure that they were safe and they were they were fine um, so I didn't give it to anybody but that stuck around that you know that pain stuck around for a few months I still occasionally have what I call the shingles tingles every once in a while you know I can feel my forehead going you know scrunching up a little bit and I thought okay that's my body saying I need to slow down. 
but I didn't. I kept on working. And I was working at the time as a therapist in an outpatient drug and alcohol rehab, 12 to 14 hour days, sleeping maybe five or six hours a night, um, working out at the gym five or six times a week. I was going to say five or six times a day, but no, that was about <laughs> five or six times a week, eating what I thought was a healthy, mostly vegetarian diet. But it turned out that a lot of what I was eating was high in sodium, high in cholesterol. So on June 12th of 2014, on my way home from the gym, I had a heart attack at 55 years old. And rather than driving straight to the closest hospital, I drove home and I canceled with a client and then I drove myself to my local ER. And I oh my and gosh. never, ever, ever, ever do that. Anybody call 911. Don't yeah. I could have hurt myself. I could have killed somebody. So I drove to the hospital, stumbled in and said, I think I'm having a heart attack. They whisked me up to the cardiac cath lab. And I always tell this as a joke, and I'm assuming your, your, your listeners would be cool with this. The, um, the, the woman, the nurse in the, in the cath lab says, you're going to hate me, but I'm only going to shave you on one side because at the time, you know, what they, what they do when they insert the catheter is they can either do it through the groin or through the wrist, but just in case they couldn't go in through the wrist, they'd have to go in through the groin. And I said, well, couldn't you do a, a landing strip, uh, you know, instead of just one side? She says, well, you're on your own for that when you get home. So that kind of broke up the tension. And I thought, okay, that means she thinks I'm going to live to be able to do this. So um, then they inserted a stent which pop, propped up a you know, fully occluded artery. And the surgeon came in and showed me a picture of what it looked like. Now, be the before picture looked like a broken tree branch, which was kind of bent and hanging down. And with the stent, it was popped back up. He said, don't let this happen again. And I said, well, how did it happen in the first place? He said, well, tell me your history. Well, my mom died of congestive heart failure. My sister had had two heart attacks previously. Um, and I told him about my crazy schedule. And he said, you can't do that anymore. Dear friends came to visit me and, and um, insisted that I wait at least two weeks before I went back to work, even though the doctor said I could go back in a week. And one of them, my friend Phil, says in his, in his New York accent, leans over the bed and he says, you go back to work next week, I come over and break both your legs. Now, <laughs> I didn't go back to work for two weeks. I, I was laying on the couch watching the ceiling fan spin. Um, somebody else said, don't let your heart attack go to waste. You know, what do you, you know, you're not indispensable. My best friend who's known me since I was 14 said, you know, you call yourself a woman of integrity, but you've been lying to yourself all along. I said, what do you mean? Wow. So every time you tell yourself, I'm going to slow down and you don't, your body says, eh, I'm not going to believe you. So that was a wake up call. But then a month later, even after that, you know, I started a new job that was far less stressful and it was a journalism job, which I loved. I could work from home and it lasted a year and three months and then they lost funding and we got laid off and all that. But I'm working now as a therapist in an outpatient practice and make my own schedule. But a month after the heart attack, I had my first bout of kidney stones. Now, oh if you've goodness. never had kidney stones, I would not wish it on anybody you know, even the most vile, evil person in the world, I would not wish it on them. The pain was worse than the shingles pain. Um, so that was round one. I think two or three years later, I had round two. And then a few years after that, round three. Um, and yes. thank God everything's fine. But any time, oh, oh, and then last April, a year ago, April, I had pneumonia. So wow. my body is my barometer for when I need to slow down. So that was my, my codependent workaholic wake-up call. Doesn't mean I still don't overdo it, but I overdo it a whole lot less than I did. I'm 61 now, and the reality is my body isn't doing what it could do in my 40s. And I go to the gym maybe three times a week now. And right now I'm nursing a strained Achilles tendon. I've got it propped up with a brace on it, and I had an ice pack on it last night. <laughs> 
Oh, so, no. so I, I listen, you know, I listen to my body now and I don't, I don't push it to the point that I did before. Well, I'm thankful that you are still here to this day. So that is, that's you. a blessing. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> so what would you say to somebody that's listening right now and they're like, oh my gosh, I can so relate to what she's saying. I'm a workaholic. You know, I'm in that um, savior behavior. Obviously, we hope that somebody doesn't have to have such a drastic wake-up call as like a heart attack. What advice could you give to somebody, um, you know, that is kind of going down this same path? Mm -hmm. Well, the first thing is listen to your body because it's probably the best barometer for what, you know, what's going on in your mind. Because we trick ourselves, and, and I'm speaking for myself, but a lot of people I know trick themselves into believing that, you know, just you know, one more, I can, I can handle one more, you know, one more go around, one more um, hour at work. Um, you know, just, I'm just going to stay up and, and just push my way through it. And our bodies, as flexible and as resilient as we are, they're human. You know, we're not machines. So pay attention to your body. Also pay attention to your feelings. Um, I'm not prone to depression or anxiety, but there are some days I don't feel like getting out of bed and my stomach is doing somersaults. And I think, okay, how am I going to handle my day? Because on any given day, I could be like today, we've got this interview and then I've got clients to see and then I've got um, you know an article deadline to meet. And what helps me is to take physical action. Um, I get out of bed and say, uh, you know, like before I get out of bed, I say, okay, let's just do this. And I talk my way through it as if I'm somebody else talking to myself. I use the term we, okay, we've got this because that way I don't feel alone. Um, I do something as simple as folding clothes or doing dishes uh, because it's such a Zen activity. It's, it, you know, it's just, it's an action, an action step that I take. And that way I don't get caught up in my emotions. That really helps. Um, have supports. I have wonderful, loving family and friends that are, you know, amazing people. Um, my writing is my healing. Um, I, you know, for me, it's therapeutic. Um, anytime that I write about anything in my life, it's a way of getting the, the monkey mind thoughts out of my head and onto the computer screen. And, you know, that helps. Um, support systems, you know, support groups like 12 step meetings, um, like any kind of online support. Um, I'm, I'm a part of an, a number of different writers groups and we support each other when we start feeling discouraged about, you know, um, venues not accepting our pitches or editors picking too much, you know, picking at it too much. So it helps to have kindred spirits. Oh, for me, my spiritual practice. Now, I don't tell anybody what to believe spiritually because I think it's an inside job, yes. uh, but I have what I call Godversations all the time where I say, okay, um, how do I deal with this? What is it that I can do to move through this? And what I found is that WTF is one of my favorite spiritual questions. Like, what the, you know, what, what, you know, what's this about? <laughs> so I, I don't want to say the, uh, you know, the actual words online, uh, on there, but you know what I'm talking about. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's, just, that's a question. Like, okay, this is something that's happened in my life. I don't know whether God caused it, whether God could have prevented it, but it's here. Now what do I do about it? How do I, you know, how do I work with this? And there are times when I would have said, oh, now what? But instead I say, okay, now what? What, you know, what am I supposed to do about this? Um, I heard about this amazing woman. Um, her name is Mel Robbins. And she has this 
modality that she calls, um, I think it's called the five second rule. Now it's not the five second rule where you drop something on the floor and you can still eat it. But um, <laughs> um, a few, number of years ago, she was going through some major depression and um, she didn't feel like getting out of bed, but she had children to take care of. And she realized that she couldn't continue the way she was. So she said, all right, I'm going to count to five. And when I get to count from five to one, and when I get to one, I'm going to launch myself out of bed. Five, four, three, two, one, up, out. And it worked for her. And she continued using it. There's um, a TED Talk, and she now has a TV show out of New York. And I'd love to go you know, go see her show. But I've been using that, that myself, and I've been teaching it to clients. That when I feel stuck, I need to just say, all right, no excuses. Get up, get out, do something. Do something productive. And I could hear my mother saying that. One of her favorite lines was, knock it off. Like if I was feeling sorry for myself, she'd listen and she'd be supportive and she'd say, okay, knock it off. Let's just do something. Now, I didn't feel dismissed or diminished by it. It was definitely a supportive way, you know, her, her supportive way of saying, okay, I know you got this. And my father used to say, if that's the worst thing that ever happened to you, you'll be okay. Now that to me is, you know, I have some mixed feelings. And he also used to say, uh, what hurts you hurts me. So part of that was where my codependency developed was those kind of mixed messages. Um, the other thing that came up by way of codependence is that I remembered my parents saying to me, don't ever do anything we'd be ashamed of. So it wasn't until my mom was on hospice and we had one of those two o'clock in the morning conversations when neither of us could sleep. And I brought that up. She says, Oh, we never said that. We said, don't ever do anything you would be ashamed of. So wow. all along I had used my parents as a barometer for my own. Well, I mean, we hope we use our parents, um, you know, as a barometer for our, our um, you know, for our values, if they're positive values, but she, she wanted me to be my own barometer. So those are the things that I'm realizing all these years later that I, you know, that I allowed to, to pull me under and in, into codependence. Yeah, that is some good stuff. Oh my goodness. Great advice. Um, and I could just continue talking to you forever because there's so many things popping up into my head, but I want to respect your time as well as our listeners' time. So um, before we end the call, will you just take a few minutes to tell the listeners, Edie, where they can find you online? Because I'm sure people are interested in a lot of stuff that we've talked about today. Oh, absolutely. Well, first of all, is my website. It's called um, optimistical.com www.opti-mystical.com. That's my website. I'm also on Facebook uh, under Edie Weinstein, E-D-I-E-W-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N. -E -E um, those are the two best places to reach me. Other thing real quickly that I wanted to mention that um, ties in with self-care for me um, is something that I do called um, Hug Mobsters Armed with Love. I don't know if I'd mentioned that to you before, but um, I do free hugs all over the world. And I started doing it in 2014, um, which was right, actually right before the heart attack. It was February, Valentine's Day weekend, 2014. I brought a group of friends to 30th Street Station in Philadelphia, which is our big train station. Mm -hmm. And we did a free hugs flash mob. And one of the people that approached us for a hug was an Iraq war vet who was the only survivor of his platoon. And he said he had survivor's guilt 
and thought about ending his life until he met us. Can he join us? So we gave him a sign. He walked around and hugged people too. And I thought, well, we've really got something here. So friends started calling us hug mobsters, like flash mob, hug mob. And I said, ooh, mobsters, guns, drugs, mafia. I don't think so. (laughs) Then um, I said, well, what about hug mobsters armed with love? So a few months later, I had the heart attack. As part of my cardiac rehab, I walked around Doylestown, Pennsylvania, which is near where I live, and did free hug strolls. So since then, I've hugged in, you know, in this area, in Washington, D.C. I hugged in front of the White House about the two months, September, I think, August or September. I've hugged in New York. I've hugged in um, Canada, in Oregon. Last May, year ago, May, I hugged my way across Ireland. Um, there have been a number of stories in major publications. One was Women's Day. One was Women's World. Um, our local news station, KYW radio station, interviewed me. Um, our local CB, our CBS station is probably going to do a story. So it's really getting out there in the world. So if people want to learn more about it, just look up Hug Mobsters Armed with Love. And I encourage you to hug wherever you are. Because hugs bring people together. They make a difference in, in people's lives and they meet those healthy touch needs we talked about earlier in the interview. So that's what keeps me going too. Anytime I do this, I feel healed. Wow, Edie, you are, like I said, just, oh my gosh, so amazing. Like I seriously want to be like in your presence because, oh, oh my gosh. Um, so I'm curious about the, like the hugging. How do like, how do people generally take that when you're out offering free hugs? Most people say yes. Now it's all by consent. I don't mm-hmm. do kamikaze swoop, kind of swoop by hugs with people. I have my sign, so they'll see that. Um, I'll say, would you like a hug? Most people say yes, and when they say no, they'll say, nah, I'm good. And I say, I know you're good, but hug somebody. And then I'll offer a handshake, a high five, a fist bump, Usually, they'll, or, or even a virtual hug where I'll wrap my arms around myself and imagine hugging them. Um, so I don't get offended. I don't feel rejected. I did a little in the beginning, like, you know, how come they don't want hugs? Mm -hmm. But people have lots of reasons. There are people in my life that are really cuddly, huggy, touchy feely people with people they know, but they would never hug strangers. They would, and they wouldn't accompany me. Sometimes I do it by myself. Sometimes I have friends with me. Um, there are people that I, that I know and love that would never come to a cuddle party. So um, everybody has their preferences, and I respect that. I also use it as a teachable moment with children because there are times when there are kids around, and I'll offer them a hug, and I'll say to the parent, if it's okay with you and okay with your child, can I hug your child? If the parent says yes and the child says no, it's no. And I say to the kiddo, your body is your own. Nobody touches you without permission. And I nod and smile at the parent. And I've never had a parent say, how dare you tell my child that? <laughs> you know? Because how many of us grew up with, oh, go hug Aunt so-and-so, when you really yes. want to? Um, and yes. really in this time of you know, the hashtag Me Too movement, mm-hmm. we got to be so careful. Um, I don't want to make any assumptions that anybody is okay with touch. Um, I, you know, so when I'm out in public doing this, I'm really clear. I'm there as a consent educator as well. So that, that helps for people to know that they don't have to be touched, but I encourage them, uh, you know, a couple, what was it about two or three years ago, I went with a group of friends to uh, a veterans homeless shelter in Philly. 
um, with, with a friend who gives out flowers. Um, she calls herself a flower lady, Patricia Gallagher. She'd make a great guest as well. Um, and we went to this homeless veteran shelter and I gave it like a mini hug workshop. And one of the men said, nobody has hugged me in 20 years. Can you oh imagine in 20 years without kind of that kind of nurturing touch? It just boggles the mind because we have skin hunger that's just as important to me as food hunger. Uh, and without it, we die emotionally, physically, it's, you know, we just give up. So I encourage everybody to hug somebody every day. Um, you know, an animal, that would be great, but human to human contact is so important, especially in these divisive times. When I hug people, I don't know what their politics are. I don't know what their religion is. Um, you know, I don't know what their sexual orientation, gender, you know, gender identity, anything. None of that really matters. I want people to be kind and loving to each other, no matter which side of the aisle they're on. Oh my gosh. And I love that you just said that too, because my whole thing is why can't we all just show love and kindness to one another? Like I'm so it's, and I see it really bad, especially online, you know, because people can hide behind their computers and stuff. But some of the stuff that I see people, obviously politics is a very heated discussion for people, Mm -hmm. but just how rude and mean people are like, and just you know people not accepting people that are in same-sex relationships or interracial relationships like the list just goes on and on and mm-hmm. yeah. I've never I've never been able to understand that because a person is just a person to me regardless yep. of you know the color of their skin whether they're tall short skinny yep. fat, you know whatever so mm-hmm. yeah just the like I'm so passionate about just loving others and kindness. So mm-hmm. yeah, this, absolutely. like you just talking about all this has just given me goosebumps because oh. what an amazing thing to offer others. Like it's so needed. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It is. So it's, it's something portable. It doesn't cost you anything. Um, just your, you know, open heart, open mind and just let, let people in, just love them up. <laughs> Yeah, that's so amazing. Well, Edie, thank you so much. I have enjoyed our conversation so much today. And um, I know that our listeners are going to, you know, enjoy it too. Is there any last words that you'd like to say before we end the call? Sure. Um, First, the last thing I would like for them to do is to take a look in the mirror and honor that person looking back at you and and say the words, I love you. Because that, if that, you know, that may be the only time you hear it today. And then take that energy out into the world. Because imagine what our interactions would be like if we went out into the world feeling loved. So I'm going to encourage you to give yourself a great big hug, wrap your arms around yourself, and. Thank you for your your time. That was so good. Thank you. That's a wrap for today's episode of the Your Shining Self podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a comment, and share with others that need a message of hope, love, and transformation.